How are you today? Awesome. I'm Tim. Hi. Uh, we are, uh, in effect, uh, kicking off a new series on the book of Exodus, as uh, Nick mentioned this morning. And, uh, and we will uh, be carrying this on for about eight weeks. So we're going to get in it, and it'll be fun. Um, I wanted to start off this morning uh, with a picture. Uh, if we've got that on screen here. Uh, and just a moment, there we go. Can you all read that? That was, on my, that was on my whiteboard this morning. It says, Pickett's knee is greater than Burrow's knee. I see what the attempt is here. Uh, it's Burrow's calf that's bum right now, but, you know. Here's the funny thing about this. This literally was fresh on my board this morning. I've got a friend that likes to pull pranks on me in my office uh, here, and uh, I won't, I won't uh, name his name, but uh, I could point uh, the direction um, anyway uh, that, that he's in. Uh, anyway, um, but it's funny because I, I was actually going to talk about my misery this morning for a brief moment. Uh, last weekend was rough as a Cincinnati sports fan. I wanted to curl in a ball and cry. The Reds got ousted from the postseason, and Joe Burrow probably played the, the worst game of his entire career last week. Uh, the only saving grace as a fan of Cincinnati sports last week was that our soccer club, FC Cincinnati, did win the Supporters' Shield, and that was fun. But here's, I know nobody cares about soccer. That's the thing. Like nobody really, I heard, I, I get it. I hear it. So the thing is like this, this has been, this has been a difficult stretch here. And so I'm going to confess something every now and then. And by every now and then, I mean on a weekly basis, I like to sit down and watch the uh, YouTube video of the press conferences from the Bengals. And sometimes I'll turn them on like in my chill time. And Angie will also be enjoying chill time. Like this is like post Leo going down to bed. And she'll look at me and she'll say, don't they say the same thing every single one of these every time? She's right. They pretty much do. But the reason I like to watch specifically Joe Burroughs is because and I've said this before many times over, I really, really just like to hear from people that are at the top of their, their game, the, the top of their profession, the, the, you know, hitting the highest marks, even in times of feast and famine. And of course, right now, for them, it's, it's all famine. Uh, but what's interesting is, is that when he watched his press conference last week, he, he would say things that sound really cliché. He would say things like, I've got to take it one game at a time. I've got to take it one practice at a time. In order to get better, we've just got to stack good practice on good practice. You know, I know we're all worried about our record, but right now we just got to try to go 1-0 next week. This is something that you can almost guarantee you're going to hear out of the mouth of every player that gets put uh, in front of a microphone. And in Cincinnati right now, my fellow Cincinnati fans are losing their minds because they don't want to hear these things. They want to hear that they're going to install a whole new offense 
and figure out a way to put up the amount of points that the Peyton Manning-era Colts-led teams were able to put up. See, I knew that that would get your attention. Our offensive coordinator actually was the quarterback coach of Peyton Manning in Denver. So anyway, there's some connection there. Anyway, the point is this. I actually like that Burrow is saying the things he's saying, not because they're cliche, but because they're actually honest. Because you can't ever worry about the big picture when you're trying to overcome something. You've got to take it literally one step at a time. And while that's a kind of frivolous sports thing, I want to read a quote to you by an author named James Clear who wrote a book called Atomic Habits. He says, The purpose of setting lofty goals is to win the game or championship, but the purpose of building systems is to continue playing the game. It's not about any single accomplishment. And this is, I get the yellow part here intentionally. It is about the cycle of endless refinement and continuous improvement. Endless refinement and continuous improvement. You see, let's take silly sports out of the equation. I'm a bit audacious as a person. I believe that most of us wake up every day, as my buddy Aaron Adams from back home would say, aiming to win the day. I believe most people don't wake up at 7 a.m. rubbing the sleep out of their eyes, looking at the clock and saying, ah, you know what? I'm going to throw in the towel for the day. I think most people wake up. They want to be a better spouse. They want to be a better parent. They want to be a better friend. They want to be a better coworker. They want to do well at their job. I believe most people wake up wanting to succeed at whatever it is that they find valuable in their life. Now again, maybe I'm an idealist. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the percentages would say otherwise. But I believe even more importantly than all those things, I believe most people that show up and say that they want to follow Jesus, that say that they want to live out their faith, want to win the day when it comes to being a disciple of our Lord and Savior. But the difficulty, though, is is that most of us tend to be attracted to winning the championship. We want the big moments. We want the mountaintop experiences. And every time that we run into trouble, we have a tendency to want to step back until the next big event, big experience comes to help light us back up on fire. And the reality is, is that in our life of faith, it is not always about the mountaintop moments. It's about the cycle of endless refinement and continuous improvement. The work that God does on us daily, the opportunities that God gives us and affords us daily to take one small step each day at getting better 
James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, talks about trying to get better 1%. It doesn't seem that significant until it compounds over time. Now, you might be thinking, well, we're going into Exodus. What are we talking about here? Because if I think about the story of Exodus, I think about plagues and waters parting and mass literally exoduses out of Egypt through the parted waters. I think of the big moments where God shows up, rallies the people, and moves them onward into the promised land. And guess what? Exodus is absolutely about those things. But oftentimes when we read the story to look for those things, we tend to miss the moments of the small steps that God uses to get to those big moments. And when you open the first chapter of the book of Exodus, the story starts out because of one small continuous decision by two midwives that are otherwise not heard of the rest of the story. And so to get us to that point, those single, small, continuous decisions, I'm going to go ahead and recap the story for you. Because I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Exodus at all, but really the book of Exodus is part of the first five books of the Old Testament. The, the books of the story of the Israelite people that start all the way back in Genesis. In fact, Exodus isn't really its own book. It's just there because back when scrolls were being written, you had to like stop one scroll and then start another. And so there was a nice little transitional point for the author to say, okay, we'll start a new phase of the story here. But the Exodus story actually continues the story that started in Genesis. And we read Genesis, and you get to chapter 12, and there's a pivotal moment. And by pivotal, I mean an ask is made of one guy. He's asked to make one decision, and he says yes. It says that the Lord said to Abraham, leave your land, your family, and your father's uh, uh, leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make, you, make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. And if I can get my page to turn here. There we go. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. And this is the key here. Abraham left just as the Lord told him. And Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. See, the story of the Exodus starts back when Abram, who will become Abraham, is called to leave his land to go where God leads. And God promises that out of his lineage, he will make a great nation. And we're told that Abram gets up and he goes as God commanded. He doesn't even know 
exactly where it's going to be and how it's going to unfold, but he chooses to take one step and then another and then another. And if you read the rest of the book of Genesis, well, those steps aren't exactly smooth. Genesis uh, is a story of a family that, um, if you want to learn about good family values, emulating this family is not exactly the best idea in the world. They mistreat each other, they lie to get ahead, they scheme, and while it seems to end up unfolding well, we will find out in a moment that that isn't exactly the case. Another pivotal moment in the Genesis story occurs in chapter 37 when the sons of Jacob plot to kill their brother Joseph. See, Joseph is the youngest, and he is a a bit of a dreamer. And by that, I mean he has these really lofty dreams where he is going to be in charge and his brothers will all bow down to him. Oh, and it gets better, as, as any pesky little brother would do. When he has these dreams, he thinks it's a good idea to tell the whole family about them. You think that's going to go over well? No. You see, if you read the story, his brothers don't like him. They're jealous because they can see that his dad has picked him as favorite, which, by the way, again, again really, really bad parenting advice. Don't pick favorite kids. I mean, mine is my favorite, but I only have one. So, (laughs) don't pick favorites. Jacob didn't learn that lesson. There's a lot of lessons he didn't learn along the way. And so he picks favorites. The rest of the sons all know that, that Joseph is the favorite. He's given this colorful robe. And now he's telling them about his big dreams of being an authority over them. And they're like, yeah, we got to do something about this. So Jacob sends his favorite son out to meet his brothers one day. And when he's walking out into the field to meet them, they see him at a distance and they huddle together. Not a football huddle, but uh, this isn't going to run a good play. This is going to end up plotting murder. And they say, I got an idea. Let's kill this dreamer. Now Reuben, one of the brothers, says, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. We shouldn't do that. So he talks them into just throwing Joseph into a cistern with the idea that he's going to come back later and rescue him. Unfortunately, Reuben ends up leaving the scene. They throw him in the cistern, and as things are going, a caravan of Ishmaelites comes upon them, and they get the bright idea, you know what, we won't murder him. We'll sell him. And then we'll take his coat— and we'll dip it in blood, and we'll bring it back and make our father think that he's been killed. Really good kids. But dad's proud. So that's what they do. Reuben comes back, finds the empty cistern, tears his clothes out of, uh, out of mourning, out of guilt, out of frustration. They do this. Uh, Jacob is beside himself. He's, he's beside himself. He says he's never going to live another day without mourning the loss of his son. And Joseph will end up being sold into Egypt. And I'm going to go ahead and ruin the rest of Genesis for you. Remember the dreams Joseph was having? Well, he ended up coming to fruition. 
He has a bit of an up and down life. You should read it starting at chapter 37 onward. But the point is, is that a famine hits the land and the people need sustenance. And so they go out to Egypt where everybody at the time is going. And because Joseph has managed to end up in the number two spot, he ends up being in control of divvying out, uh, meeting the needs of the people And he ends up in this power position over his family, but he ends up rescuing them. He ends up providing for them. And they make amends, and it all ends up happily ever after, right? No. You see, because you turn the page over to Exodus, and Exodus starts out by recounting in summary form what has led us to this point which is that Jacob had his sons and they eventually ended up in Egypt with Joseph and their family numbered to about 70. And we get this last line in verse 7 that they multiplied and grew dramatically filling the whole land. Filling the whole land of Egypt. Not the land God's promising. Which means they ain't staying there. And that's where our story shifts. Because we're going to get to verse 8 in just a moment. But the story changes because it fast forwards 400 years. And we find out that things have changed. The person in power has changed. The descendants have come along from Joseph and his family. Bonds that once were are now no longer in existence. And to bring us back to our point about the importance of those small steps and the impact of small decisions, I want to remind you that the reason that we're in this place 400 years later into this story that we're going to look at is because on the positive side, Abraham took the small steps of faith into going where God called him. On the negative side, Joseph's brothers took the small step of having a conversation to kill their brother and then think better of it by putting him in a cistern and then selling him. These small steps lead to where they're at. Of course, decisions also get made by the Egyptian pharaoh that will be in power by the time that the descendants are grown and multiplied. And so let's pick up in Exodus 1, starting at verse 8, and look at what has happened. It says, Now a new king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. He said to his people, The Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. Come on, let's be smart and deal with them. Otherwise, they will only grow in number. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. As a result, the Egyptians put foremen of forced work gangs over the Israelites to harass them with hard work. They had to build storage cities named Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they grew and spread. 
so much so that the Egyptians started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. So the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. They made their lives miserable with hard labor, making mortar and bricks, doing field work, and by forcing them to do all kinds of other cruel work. I want to pause there before we get to the real story that I want us to focus on today. What has basically happened is, is the Egyptian king that's come into power is looking at the vast numbers of the people that he has inherited because of Joseph's family moving along with him into Egypt. And the fact that they've multiplied into this large people group. And he's realizing that they're not part of them. And in this world of constant warring and battle, it was common for people in leadership to always try to be thinking ahead and getting the upper hand so that they can remain the power in charge. That's why, like, when you read the Old Testament and you, and you see the brutality there, the idea of one group not just winning a battle but wiping out everybody, the whole point is to make sure that that people group doesn't come back, grow back up, and get revenge, and then knock them out of power. And that's what Pharaoh's thinking here. So he devises what will eventually be a four-pronged approach to keeping the Israelite people from rising up, joining neighboring nations, and wiping them out. And the first two plots that he has are told in the passage we just read. The first one is, is that he's going to assign uh, foremen or hard labor leaders over top of these, uh, these Israelites that are doing work. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but the the storehouses that they are building are basically military storehouses. So not only is Pharaoh concerned about them rising up and trying to put them in their place, he's forcing them to work on building up their military might and arsenal in the process. He's trying to subdue them and build up his own power at the same time. But it backfires. It backfires because... As he continues to apply pressure on the Israelite people, they continue to grow in numbers. So he moves from this hard labor approach to outright slavery. They enslave the people. They enslave the people because it says that the Egyptians saw what was happening with the Israelites and their growth in numbers, and they look at them with disgust and dread. And so they make their life completely miserable. Hard labor, making mortar and bricks, doing field work, and forcing them to do all kinds of other cruel work. Now I'm filling in the gap here a little bit, but what we end up picking up when we go into the next verse, which we're going to read in a moment, is that this doesn't work either. Pharaoh's forced to devise yet another plot. A third and that's where the story picks up in verse 15. It says, The king of Egypt spoke to two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Puah. When you are helping the Hebrew uh, women give birth and you see the baby being born, if it's a boy, kill him. 
But if it's a girl, you can let her live. Now the two midwives respected God, so they didn't obey the Egyptian king's order. Instead, they let the baby boys live. So the king of Egypt called the two midwives and said to them, Why are you doing this? Why are you letting the baby boys live? And the two midwives said to Pharaoh, Because Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They're much stronger and give birth before any midwives can get to them. So God treated the midwives well, and the people kept on multiplying and became very strong. And because the midwives respected God, God gave them households of their own. Then Pharaoh gave an order to all his people, throw every baby boy born to the Hebrews into the Nile River, but you can let all the girls live. So I don't know if you caught the level of escalation from Pharaoh in this story. First, it's hard labor. Then it's enslavement. And now I'm going to go under the radar and I'm going to go talk to these midwives who are helping the Hebrew women give birth. And I'm going to tell them to kill the baby boys in the process. And they don't. (laughs) This is the decision. This is the small, significant, but small yet continuous decision that they make. Because every single time a baby boy is born to a Hebrew woman, the midwives do not do as Pharaoh commanded. And so Pharaoh is beside himself. So he comes and he says, Why did you let the boys live? (laughs) And they tell a story. You can be the judge as to whether or not the story is telling the whole story. You see, the way that this is worded in the text, uh, the midwives, out of their fear of God, have made a conscious decision to let the boys live. But when Pharaoh approaches, they say, oh, well, the Hebrew women are too strong. (laughs) They're too quick. We can't do anything about it. Sorry. And it says that God takes care of them because of their respect for him. They know that in God's kingdom, life is more valuable than the power of a worldly king. And they know this. And their respect for God's authority far outseats, far supersedes that of the Egyptian king. And so they decide, I'm going to side with God and not the king and power. And that's when Pharaoh escalates it more. Our chapter today ends with now the Egyptian king no longer under the radar telling midwives to kill the baby boys, but instead he he issues an edict. Every baby boy born is to be thrown into the Nile. Of course, here's a little foreshadowing. That's going to backfire on him too. But we'll get to that in another week. Because I want us to sit here in a moment 
with what these two midwives to the Hebrew women have done. Out of their fear of God, out of their faithfulness to God, they made the decision, a significant one, to save the lives of these baby boys that the Pharaoh wanted to have killed. Now, again, remember why he's doing all this. In this world, it was always men getting up and going to war. So, what better way to stop that from happening? Well, first, we'll put them in hard labor. Nope, that doesn't work. Next, we'll enslave them. Nope, that doesn't work. I've got an idea. We'll kill the baby boys. That doesn't work. We'll throw them in the Nile. We will make sure that this people cannot rise up against us. But the problem, though, is is that God is at work. But at this point in the story, God isn't at work in ten plagues, in separating the sea, in signs and wonders. Do you know where God is at work at this point in the story? In the singular, small, yet significant decision of faith by two midwives who decide that they are going to honor God over the king in power. And because of their small decision of faith, it will lead to significant outcomes. Not only for the story of the Exodus, but the story of our faith. See, every act of faith is an act of God. Every act of faith by a believing person, a person that has chosen to revere God, a person that has chosen to follow him, a a person who's chosen to be emboldened and empowered by his spirit is an act of God. And it cannot be stopped. I want to tell you about one of my favorite wins of all time in ministry. It's the silliest, dumbest thing in the world. But back in like 2015, 2016, I was teaching a a class. And and, in this particular class, uh, this particular iteration, I was talking about the importance of, of the Bible. Why the Bible... Uh, is inspired, why it's trustworthy, why it can be trusted. And in that class, there was a, a teenage, uh, a young teenage man and uh, his mom. And so we, we went through the material and we're talking about the Bible and, you know, why, why we should believe what the Bible says, why we can trust what it says, why it's viable what it says, all these wonderful things that are important to know. But I concluded at the end of this particular class, and I said, you know, here's the thing, though, about all this stuff. It's wonderful to to check a theological box about the inspiration of Scripture, but if you believe that the Bible's inspired, you should want to know what it says and do what it says to do. Because an inspired Word of God is really only important to us if we actually live in a way that validates the fact that it is in fact inspired. 
And yet, we have a tendency as people, when things get difficult, to back up. You know, last week we talked about the fact that God has the power to overcome our overwhelm. When Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount, the people that heard him were overwhelmed at his teaching. And we brought up the idea that we oftentimes become overwhelmed at the steps of faith that we need to take. Even some of the most simple and basic ones, like coming to terms with what our faith actually proclaims and being engaged with God in our daily walk. And like most people, we open up the Bible and we try to read it and things don't make sense. Concepts get hard, they get convicting. We miss a day here and there and we think, well, now I've, I've ruined my streak, so I'm just going to stop reading it altogether. I don't know if you do that. I'm guilty of that. I do that with exercise all the time. I get on a roll and then like I miss a day or two and then it turns into like two months. It's not, not great. We do that. We're human. We want the big thing. We want to make the big gesture. We want to make the big proclamation. And then we trip up and we decide I'm going to bow out because I'm too overwhelmed by it. And I told this class in there, one of the number one reasons I hear people don't read their Bible on a regular basis is because of time. We don't have time. It takes a lot. It takes a lot of time, mental energy to get into. And so I told the class, well, no, I didn't tell them. I asked them for a show of hands. I said, do any of you ever use the restroom? Yes, they did the same thing. They laughed too. And I said, when you use the restroom, do you ever take a little leisure time, have some reading material? I know we all take these in there with us. Come on. You do it. Not everybody probably does it, but I do. Anyway, they chuckled along and they said, yeah. And then I looked at them and I said, well, there you go. You have time. Now, that wasn't the big win for me. That was not a clever way of talking people into reading their Bible on a regular basis. The win actually came about a week later. That mom that was in the class with her son sent me an email. And before even saying hello or any niceties, she said, I just have to tell you about this. I went into my bathroom yesterday, and I was picking up some stuff. And we have a little section where there's magazines and books. And my son's Bible was open on top of it, marked with the next place that he was going to pick up reading the next time he went in. She then said, I always hoped that my kid would grow up to have a faith of his own because he's had a tough upbringing. And that little nudge in that class to let him know it was okay to spend some time in the restroom reading his Bible got through to him and he did it. That was my win. You see, the thing is, God can call us to do wonderful things and he often calls us to do simple, small, singular step, mundane things. 
Sometimes he just wants you to get up and take one step. Sometimes he wants you to take a moment to do a small act of love for your neighbor. Sometimes, I'm guilty of this, he wants you to put the phone down and look your kid in the eye. Sometimes he wants you to look your spouse in the eye and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Sometimes he wants you to get up and focus on your work so that you show your coworkers, even the people above you, that you serve a God that values your hard work. And yes, sometimes God will ask you to do really, really big things. But the key is that every act of faith that you choose to say yes to is an act of God. You have no idea how profound that one step, that one word, that one small act of faith can have. You just have to say yes. You just have to say the word. You just have to take the step. See, when we get into the book of Exodus, there will be big, wondrous acts of God that we talk about. And we will be in awe of the God who with a strong arm led his people out of slavery and toward the promised land. And we will be in awe that that God stuck with his plan even when his people faltered all the way to the point of his son Jesus coming into the world. And we will be in awe of a God whose son said yes every time the act of faith was called upon him, even to the point of a cross. You and I sit in this room because somebody along the line of God's great plan in history made one act of faith and out of that was born an act of God. And that is reason to celebrate and it is reason to be inspired to not blow off the small, singular, mundane opportunities that we have every day because you don't know the impact that God can make through them. So as we look at the book of Exodus, Exodus being the people being led out of slavery and toward the promised land, I want us to think about the book of Exodus not as the book containing grandiose stories, but the book that literally is filled with small steps because every act of faith is an act of God. Not just in the lives of the people we read about, but in yours and mine too. And on that note, I hope you grabbed a communion on your way in. Each week we take communion because we remember that Jesus took the steps and said yes in his acts of obedience to the Father and gave up his life so that we could have life and have it to the full. 
So right now, we're going to take a time of quiet and reflection on not only the obedience of God's one and only Son, Jesus, but on the example that he gives us to taking our own small acts of faith. And after we take that time of reflection, we will take communion together as one church family. I invite you to take and eat this bread. This is his body, which is given for us. In the same way, I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood, which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for just an opportunity to uh, worship you in spirit and truth, to sing praise to you, to be obedient and communion to you, to hear your word. Even the steps that we take when we come faithfully on Sunday, the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, we proclaim our faith. And I pray, God, that uh, this time together as we focus on the way that you worked in the story of Exodus. I pray that uh, mornings like this will be a catalyst for us to take the steps of faith that you call us to day in and day out. And that you will encourage us to do that, uh, not only by the power of your spirit, but by the stories that unfold that we can't even see all the time because of those steps of faith. We thank you for loving us the way that you do. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.